Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. The inevitable policy response is a climate transition forecasting consortium commissioned by the PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment. It aims to prepare institutional investors for the portfolio risks and opportunities associated with accelerated policy responses to climate change. Our guests in this episode are Anthony Hobley and Jacob Tomei, who co-hosted the launch of the IPR Forecast Policy Scenario 2023 during Climate Week in New York. IPR forecasts a continued acceleration in climate policy between now and 2025 and believes that those policy responses will be increasingly forceful, abrupt, and disorderly. So, IPR produces in-depth scenarios to assist investors navigating the financial, market, and real economy uncertainties inherent in climate transition. Anthony and Jacob will join me in a moment, but first I want to say a few words about our sponsor. If you're tuning into this podcast and you already understand the crucial role finance plays in the transition to a sustainable future. With the right individuals leading the way in top companies, sustainability becomes more than a buzzword. That's why we're excited to have Acre as our sponsor. As a world-leading sustainability search and recruitment company, Acre enables organizations to create real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in their teams. Visit the Acre website to learn more about their latest opportunities or to get in touch about building your perfect team. Hello, Anthony and Jacob, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. How are you today? Good, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. So thank you so much for having us uh, on your podcast, on the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. And we're going to jump right into the questions that we have prepared for you both. And Jacob, the first question is for you. What is the inevitable policy response? So the inevitable policy response is the idea that ultimately climate change will lead us to drive a policy response, to define the word with the word, uh, a policy acceleration that is going to eventually deliver uh, net zero this century. Um, so we forecast CO2 by 2060 and greenhouse gas emissions by 2080. And that this uh, policy response will in fact also deliver uh, with all the uncertainties accounted for, a well below two degrees temperature outcome. And we believe that not because uh, we like to have rose-colored glasses on, but because it falls from the climate reality. It simply, and I think the pandemic showed that, defies belief that policymakers would sit idly by as the planet burns. We could have imagined that before the planet started burning, uh, perhaps because it was the abstract, but I think the last year they've robbed us of that illusion. And, and that is the conversation the inevitable policy response wants to have. Terrific. Well, thank you for those opening remarks. And Anthony, uh, can we talk about the inevitable, in inevitable policy response? Why is a policy response to the climate crisis inevitable? And when will it happen? I think exactly. You, you've hit on the, I think, the core of what IPR um, is all about. It's based on the thesis that, you know, we are not going to sit back um, and do nothing 
um, in the response to this crisis. You know, much as we didn't sit back um, and do nothing and just accept um, the COVID pandemic, um, much as we haven't sat back and accepted things like polio, um, you know, and all kinds of other examples we can give. And as I think the impacts stack up and people really begin to feel that, certainly as they've done in the last couple of years this year, I think we are seeing that response. We are seeing the sort of political tectonic plates move. The Inflation Reduction Act, I think, is a is a really good uh, example. Um, the, you know, even if you didn't look at the energy transition, we've just seen the IEA's latest, very actually aggressive, it's called Real Waves, their latest 1.5 degree pathway, which is very bullish, particularly on the energy transition. Well, if, you know, we, we got to this point with wind and solar because of a policy response, Nordic countries in the sort of 70s and 80s, um, European countries in the 90s, uh, the energy vendor in Germany, followed by Spain, France, the UK, and then the uh, the response to the financial crisis, the Obama package, significant amount of that went into renewables, and then China picking it up and, and scaling it. So we are where we are because of a policy response that is gathering pace. So as the evidence stacks up, as the impacts of climate stack up, that inevitability becomes <laughs> again following Jacob's lead, defining with with the wall more inevitable. Um, and I, I do think we are seeing that the. the you know, and clearly, I think with many of the, you know, the IA report, the IPR forecast, destination now is, I think, beyond doubt. Um, what is still up for debate is speed and scale, the speed at which we get there. And I think built into the inevitable policy response, because that of inevitability, is the later it happens, the more aggressive it will be, because the evidence that the need to respond will be greater, and the more disruptive that will be. The earlier it is, the less disruptive. And, and I think that's critical for investors to understand and to be aligned with this. I think also, and we can get into this in the conversation, it's important to understand the difference between a forecast, um, a scenario, and a pathway. Most of what is out there are scenarios and pathways of what we would like it to be, what it should be, not what it is. Okay, good. So, Jacob, I'm going to ask you to pick up where Anthony has left off, and that's with the fact that IPR provides a quarterly policy forecast as opposed to a scenario or a pathway. Why is that so important, and why is it unique? Well, it's unclear why it's unique because it is kind of surprising that we don't have more of this kind of conversation, I think, right? I mean, this is the quintessential question that investors are facing. What will the transition look like? And the way they are, the response to that question so far from the scenario model community is, well, sort of a, a sort of a sort of a potpourri of options and scenarios. It could go this way, it could go the other way. Well, what do you think? Oh, I, I don't have any skin in the game. Uh, you know, well, we think it's ideally 1.5. So there's a scenario. Yeah, but do you think 1.5 will happen? Mm, probably not. So what do you think will happen? Well, maybe it's this one, right? So this is the kind of debate we want to tramp, we want to move beyond, right? Uh, by IPR saying, this is a high conviction forecast. What that means is we think this will happen. And it does make the debate complicated because, you know, when we, when we launch, you know, we have one set of investors who are saying, so uh, why are you so much more optimistic than say the global stock take or the NDC scenario modeling work that things want on two degree, 2.6 degree trajectory? And obviously the response to that is, 
Well, we're not more optimistic than them because they don't have any, it's not what they believe. They're just showing what happens if literally from now until the end of this century, we don't accelerate or add any more climate policies to what we have in place, which is, pardon the word, an absurd proposition, right? I mean, we're used to policy backsliding on some level, but the idea that we would never build on any of the policy infrastructure we've put in place over the next 80 years is just absurd. Um, And so I think that's why we aren't actually more optimistic than them, because these other providers don't have conviction behind what they are saying. I mean, personally, they do, of course, you know, the individuals, but sort of the public material is is conviction free. And that's, I think, important for investors to understand when we survey investors, when we survey climate policy experts, they largely agree with our forecast. We are a realistic and most likely future that investors can prepare for and that perhaps even more importantly, investors can invest in. And that is, I think, uh, the key distinction between a a here, there, gone tomorrow mentality to scenarios that are just there to illustrate a world rather than what we're trying to do, which is, and we may be wrong, and we, in fact, we will definitely be wrong on one or the other point, but we're trying to do is start the conversation about what we all actually collectively and individually, and of course, the people who are allocating the capital believe about the transition. Yeah, so Jacob, thanks. Uh, you're suggesting uh, uh, that uh, your latest uh, IPR forecast is is implying temperatures that will peak at 1.7 to 1.8 degrees centigrade. And this suggests that we're on track for the first part of the Paris Agreement target, namely keeping a global temperature rise this century well below 2 degrees centigrade. This is pretty optimistic, isn't it? And I'll ask both of you to address this one. Anthony, why don't you go first? Well, I'll, I'll let Jacob get into the, the details of this and, and the analysis. But yes, and, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. The, the Paris target is, in, in a sense, in two parts. And so what we're talking about here is is optimism around the first part, but still a degree of pessimism around the, the second part. So it is not we are not suggesting in any way to put off the pedal in fact quite the opposite in fact there's a good reason to put more you know uh you know i'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of you know i'm thinking of an electric car rather than sort of gas when put on the pedal yes <laughs> um i think this is critical because you know if if we if we are still nowhere near on track and you know we're hearing from you know ar6 and we've got the global stock take um, and even the IA report, as aggressive as it is, is still talking about two plus degrees. I think somewhere near two point four. Um, that's pretty depressing if you think about all the advocacy, the the money, the you know we're all we're soon going to have the twenty eighth set of climate negotiations, all the climate you know action summits that we've had around the world, um, and we are still way above two. And let's be clear, I think as we understand, you know, my understanding, I'm not a climate scientist, but my understanding is we have a much better understanding of the sensitivities and the sensitivities of our society and economy to a changing climate. So in, in you know, if I could paraphrase, you know, two degrees is the new four. Um, so we do not want to be going above two degrees because I think we're into, you know, we're into catastrophic territory. Um, and 1.5, I think we're beginning to understand you know, it, it's there for a reason because, you know, that's where we think we have a high probability and it's still not 100% that, you know, at least there's a degree of stability, you know, that we can maybe live with. It's still bad. And so let, let's, you know, be clear, 1.5 is still bad and ideally we'd want to be even lower than that. 
Um, but above two is catastrophic. And I think there's a real risk, and I've seen this in recent meetings, that psychologically we can't cope with that. And, and there's a, a throwing up our hands and going, well, you know, what's the point? Whereas, you know, if we're not on track, we're going to overshoot 1.5, you know, but if it's 1.7 to 1.8, at least we're within, um, you know, within, and I'm trying to use a, a, a nice phrase, but I mean, a spitting distance of, of 1.5. You can still imagine, you know, really getting to grips with this. Um, and even if we overshoot, pull him back. It's not ideal. We don't want to be there. We'd rather be at 1.5, but I think it's critical to understand that. So what we're saying is, yes, you know, we're on track to meet the first part, which is well below two, but we're not on track for the second bit, which is, you know, 1.5 or as close to that as we can be. And so, but I actually think this sends a really positive message. Look, we're all, we're not far off. So why wouldn't we put even more effort in, you know, cause the destination is clear. Um, why, you know, why sort of, you know, sit back and not do more and live with all the disruption that 1.7 to 1.8 would imply, you know, actually, I think this should encourage us to, to go even further because we're beginning to see progress. I mean, I'll let Jacob talk a little bit more about why. Yeah. Why we're in staring. Jacob, I, before I, you, I before you start, mean, ahead, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, I wanted to, you both used the term stock take, which I believe many of our listeners and followers are not familiar with. I know I wasn't familiar with it uh, until recently. So if you can incorporate the, uh, what that means into your response, I'd appreciate it. So the global stock take is this uh, concept under the Paris Agreement that we regularly check in, basically, with all the country commitments, see how ambitious mm -hmm. they are, and see you know where they end up, up where we end up with those commitments relative to the Paris Agreement temperature goal. And remember, the Paris Agreement is bottom up, so each country sort of builds their own uh, sort of commitments into into this process, and this is sort of a centralized way to sort of give everyone a grade effectively. Um, and in fact, what's I think interesting and what we're seeing is that uh, these are part of a ratchet process. So we're expecting those commitments to accelerate. And we're obviously seeing in part bottom-up policies more ambitious than the high-level global commitments. So I think it's we are almost in a place where the these nationally determined contributions, the NDCs, which is what these individual pledges are called, are lagging the underlying policy dynamics in some of these countries. And of course, that's a mixed picture, but you know, it's I think interesting. Now, I mean, to your question about um, optimism, pessimism, I just turn it around. Why is everyone so pessimistic, right? So to, to just illustrate the point, under two degrees, according to most scenarios, still get, allows us to get to net zero by the 2090s or even 2100. We have in, in, in a lot of runway left to get to under two degrees. You know, that's, that's 500 megatons of year, year on year reduction that we're talking about on the CO2 side. A 2.5 degree scenario turn, or, you know, there's some uncertainty, let's live with it. But the mid two degree scenario, let's call it that, that basically means emissions at current level for another 60 to 80 years, zero global annual emissions reduction for another 60 to 80 years under the sort of 2.6, 2.7, 2.5, 2.8, you know, that kind of ballpark scenario. So 50, 60, 70, 80, you can, you know, you can kind of work out sort of the, the range here. This kind of pessimism seems implausible. We are already seeing policy ambition on electric vehicles, renewable energy bending the curve. The IEA step scenario 
is which is you know still being updated this year is already suggesting we're going to take five gigatons of CO two out of the system by 2030 relative to the 40 where we are right now. So there can be backsliding, you know there can be uh, other macro factors that are going to throw a wrench in the in the engine, right? Of course, and we may not get all the way to 1.7, 1.8, but the idea that we are on track for 2.5 is a type of pessimism about the climate policy ambition, which is not just inconsistent with what we think the acceleration will look like, because it would be possible to assume acceleration. It's frankly also kind of inconsistent with what we're seeing right now, whether you're looking at policy or whether you're looking at the underlying technology trends. And I think that's what we have to reconcile. By the way, when we look at the surveys, like I said, climate policy experts actually agree with our quote-unquote optimism. So that's the realism. Anthony highlighted the optimism of you know keeping 1.5 in play, the pessimism is everything that's south of where we are, I would say. And I think that's that's where that's where the, the the debate needs to be reframed. It's just people don't appreciate. And this is because we've talked about six degrees in the past. For those that have been around this topic a little bit longer, that was something that was part of the discourse at some point in our lives. You know, that every point one degree of warming is just a lot of emissions. So once we bend the curve. We have all the opportunity in the world to bend it to where we need to be to under well below. And, you know, speaking to Anthony's point, eventually, hopefully get back to 1.5. Okay, well, great. Well, thanks for expanding on those concepts there. Anthony, back to you for this one. While the IPER forecast has been well received by the investment community, there's been some criticism from NGOs in the space, uh, hasn't there, over the last couple of years? Well, for, for many years. Uh, but what do what would you, what do you say to them uh, in response uh, to to their criticisms? Well, I mean, building on I think Jacob's point, um, I I think we have learned that a, that a diet of you know negative headlines. Um, a diet of, of, of just trying to sort of get people scared into taking action doesn't work. Um, neither, actually, on its own, does the story of, of the great green future, green jobs, green investment, etc. You know, where, where I have some sympathy with NGOs is you, you have to you have to give people a reason to get you know to leave their comfort zone, to get off the sofa. Um, and get into that sort of diet or go to the gym and exercise and get fit. But if you if you simply scare someone with your, you know, you're unhealthy, um, you know, you're you're you know you're gonna have a serious uh, disease, um, then I think a lot of people psychologically, you know, reach for their psychological comfort blanket. Um, and you have to find a way of combining the two. So you have to combine, you know, fear and hope. And I actually, you know, what I would say to, to the NGOs is I think IPR is a perfect example of combining those two things. You know, as I said earlier, you know, 1.8, 1.7 to 1.8 is not good. We know anything about 1.5 and possibly, possibly 1.5, you know, is, is not safe. But if, if people, particularly investors, one of the primary audiences for the IPR, you know, look at this and go, well, nothing's happening despite all of the the effort, all of the the noise and communications and, and negotiations around climate. So actually, we can keep investing in these other things because we, you know, we're not going to pay in the short term any kind of 
financial price. Whereas you look at IPR as forecast, and I think investors, those managing portfolios um, and assets have to look at that very seriously and go, oh, actually, our investments are out of line with where things are going. And I think that's, you know, that's critical. And it will build up a momentum. Um, but it doesn't tell you that everything's rosy and we're on track. Um, it tells you that, you know, we are off track because we're overshooting 1.5, but we're still within shooting distance, if you like. Um, I was at a, uh, an event of many uh, climate policy and NGO leaders uh, in Scotland at Findhorn and Eco Village uh, over the summer. And they did this really interesting exercise, the 1.5 continuum. And they, these are all people working in the climate space. And the exercise was, if you believe 1.5 is possible, you know, stand at the left side of the room. If you believe it is not possible, stand at the right side of the room. I was shocked that probably nearly 70% of the people there when stood at the right side of the room, 1.5 is not and I remember one lady, I hope she doesn't mind me quoting her, I'll quote her anonymously, um, said that she, that's where she lives, because that's what she believes now, but every day she commutes to 1.5 as possible um, for her job. Um, and, and there was a real sense, I think, of despair and people really grappling with this. And we're beginning to see, I think, you know, there was something, and I've seen a number of things posted recently that, you know, we've got to wake up to the facts and accept 1.5 is not possible. And I think that's coming from a lot of this pessimism um, that we're, we're we're on track well over to two degrees. And actually, I think that is far more dangerous to what we are trying to achieve um, and lets people like the UK's prime minister off the hook by trying to soften some of the targets. But if, if the message was, no, we're on track, you know, countries are investing, which they are, you know, this technology as a result of policy is starting to really scale up. And actually, if you soften your targets, you're, all you are doing is disadvantaging yourself economically, which I believe is what has happened uh, with the UK after such a strong leadership position for so many years. And that's why I think um, you know, the NGOs should look and really understand IPR much more, that actually it's incredibly helpful um, to their cause. Okay. So, Jacob, back to you for this uh, next question, and that is that the focus of the IPR's policy reports, uh, the intended audience, uh, um, is actually the finance community, particularly asset owners, owners, asset owners and managers. Why is this so important? Why is it so important for them? And what should they be doing in light of IPR forecasts? Well, I think it, it speaks to an issue we've sort of touched upon a little bit earlier, which is you put your money in, ultimately you put your money in what you believe. I mean, that's the sort of the core constraint to any capital allocation decisions. Now you can sometimes be weird off course and maybe your beliefs are not static i hope they're not obviously in many cases and sure there are regulatory constraints this is a messy world but at its heart you put the money where you think the world is going where your city is going whatever universe that is relevant to you to your investment decision um and so the challenge is to uh figure out where the world is going under this climate transition. And now, obviously, the one way to do that is to 
what we've done so far is to tell everyone to sort of speak into existence a 1.5 degree world. And we see that's not really working because, you know, despite <laughs> some prejudices among some of us, investors are generally smart people and understand when a spade's a spade. What IPR is trying to do is really be honest about where we think the world's going. And sometimes that involves, like I said, hard choices. You know, we think, for example, Turkey and South Africa are not going to meet their net zero goal. It's not going to be a great message for allocating more ambitious capital into those countries, but it speaks to the integrity of our process. And that integrity is so processed because it builds conviction. And that conviction is the prerequisite for capital allocation to the transition. And I think the noise around all the different scenarios has sort of created this anything goes, nobody knows mindset among some investors. And that's not a criticism. It's just, you know, it's all uncertain. We don't know what's happening in the future and it's a mess and everyone's got a different opinion. We only know that we need to get to 1.5, but we also equally know that basically it's almost impossible or some would say impossible. Where in practice, the corridor of futures is narrow dramatic. We actually have a pretty narrow corridor now of policy outcomes. You know, there's five to 10 year deltas with the odd black swan policy events in some election here or there, sure. But the overall policy universe of the 300 plus policies that we're forecasting, I think that universe has narrowed dramatically, you know, at least in the sort of central futures. And with that understanding, your capital allocation decisions can come with the conviction that I think is necessary for them to materialize also is really ultimately fundamentally necessary for them to have the impact that I think, you know, many of us are hoping is sustainable finance mindset or industry or whatever you want to call this, this, this beehive uh, has. And, and I think, you know, one of the interesting questions, one of the large bond investors in the room at, at one of the launch events said, all right, well, where do you put sort of the probability of, you know, undershooting, overshooting your forecast? You know, you go back to the pessimism, optimism question. And, and you could say, all right, well, we're assuming forecasts that policies are still accelerated. So maybe, you know, maybe we are assuming, you know, you know, the risk is more on one side. But of course, really fundamentally from a strategic and risk perspective, the entire risk is on more accelerated policy than what we're forecasting, or 90%, let's say. Because if the net zero year is 2060 or 2065, the core underlying transformation is similar. Sure, you may be five years slower, five years faster. You you maybe don't make as much money as you would along the way by leaving, you know high carbon a little too early or getting into the green business a little too too early as well. But from a you know from a fundamental risk perspective, that narrow corridor means actually your risk profile is reducing dramatically. And the biggest residual risk downside is really on us being wrong about being not quote unquote optimistic enough. That's why we talk to investors because and whether it's NGOs, whether it's policymakers and whether it's consumers at the end of the day or us as citizens, we need to start to establish what the conviction about the transition is in order to have that change that we want to see in the world. And like I said, sometimes that will make us look as the conservatives because we're not predicting 1.5, but ultimately will help us have the kind of conversation. And that's in our fundamental belief that the policy response is inevitable. So we feel confident that over time, we are always on the side of, of you know, a, a, a forecast that speaks to that inevitable policy response. Okay. And Anthony, back to you for our last question, and that is, beyond the world of finance, uh, where is the IPR forecasting process most widely relevant? Does it apply to governments and policymakers, as well as other businesses and even to NGOs? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it has much wider applicability. I mean, even if you just think of, you know, in, investors needing a forecast, you know, as, as Jacob has said, so they understand, you know, where we're most likely going as opposed to all these pathways and scenarios which suggest where we should go, which are, you know, are not really going to inform investment decisions. But a forecast, and, you know, don't forget, we we are moving from a backward-looking world to a forward-looking world, which is actually why a forecast is so critically important. We're trying to drive a transition racing against a climate clock that is unprecedented. So all, all the sort of backward-looking tools we used to use in the past don't really help us anymore. And so this is probably why, you know, to Jacob's earlier point, it's taken a while for people to understand we need this forward-looking forecast um, because of that change, which is, you know, we're not wired for yet. We will be because we'll have to be over the next 30 years. But if it's critical for investors to understand where their portfolio, how to align their portfolios or what is most likely to happen, it's also just as important for companies trying to understand how their business model and products are going to change. And, you know, they're being required to develop, you know, net zero strategies um, and pathways. For governments understanding, well, okay, what's our policy framework need to be to make us competitive? Um, you know, it, I think that's now a live issue for most governments with the sort of policy that's being introduced. And this, in a, in a sense, helps them understand across 20-plus countries of the major economies in the world covering most of emissions and GDP, um, where we are collectively going and where individual countries are going. So actually, they under, you know, and I think that then also helps them with their electorates, with their people, to say, well, actually, you know, we need to do this because it's important for keeping us competitive for the industries of the future, for the jobs that you will all need um, you know, in the future. So all the things I think people care about. And, and also for how we ensure you know, we, we provide cost-effective energy um, and resources. You know, all of that will be to some degree dependent on the pathway you know, the world as a whole is going, the, the policy pathway. And this, this is what um, the IPR forecast provides. So I actually think it, you know, is critically important. One of the things that I think we're beginning to see is a renewed um, belief after many decades in industrial strategy. Well, again, as you design that industrial strategy, you know, as a government, as a policymaker, you know, as as you you know align the policies in your city, you don't do that in a vacuum. You do that by understanding, well, who, you know, how is everybody else changing? What policies are being used elsewhere? Where is everybody else? So I, I actually think it's it's critically important, and, and I think it is actually when you look at it in that context, it is surprising that IPR, you know, um, is the first to have developed such a a forecast. I think we will see, you know, as as people understand that and how critically important that is and to have that benchmark. I think we will see, you know, more reliance on IPR's forecast, and we'll see the development of more tools uh, like this. I think this is just the beginning. Terrific. Jacob, any closing remarks? Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, you know, I, the, the story has been been laid out wonderfully by Anthony. And indeed, it's I think what's sort of interesting about this as well is to the last point that Anthony spoke to, right, which is part of what we're trying to do is also get people to take a view. You know, if somebody comes back to IPR and says, well, I think that, you know, we're going to see I don't know, deforestation in Indonesia, we think it'll effectively end by 2030. And they say, well, you know, I think you're too op way too optimistic. It'll be 2035. All right, great. Let's have that conversation. That's the sort of the arena of ideas that we're trying to 
perhaps engineer is happening and making it sound too aggressive, but at least to try to sort of help create or stimulate. And I think that's where we see the conversation is going. Look, you don't have to agree with us. And forecasts are a scary proposition because inevitably, just as the policy response is inevitable, so too will it be inevitable that we'll be wrong on one or the other account. And so, you know, we're kind of putting our our sort of our head out there for to get to get to get sort of beaten up about one or the other aspect. But let's if you don't believe us, tell us what you believe and let's have that conversation. And I think we you know for IPR, it's about being a forecasting platform that allows us to have intelligent conversations. And I think I'm convinced, you know, anybody listening to this podcast now who thinks, all right, I mean, I understand what you guys are saying, but still way too optimistic. Well, I think they'll realize that once they go into this process, they're more optimistic than they think. Because even a five or 10 year delay, some of our forecast still has a negligible impact on temperatures on the overall net zero goals. It has a, you know, almost by design, a five to 10 year, year impact. And that is, I think, such an educational process because we're not sitting there going, we want the world to be 1.8. We've literally looked at 300 individual policies and said, what do we think this will be? We survey experts. We look at the current policy in place. We look at the market trends. We have a decision meeting on the policy. We make a call, next, 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 across the under policies. And then we tell the modeling team, tell us what the temperature net zero outcomes will be. That process is a really productive one. I can recommend to any investor and one that allows you to gauge with not just what you want the world to look like ultimately, but what you think it will look like at the end of the day. I think there's a couple of generations of investors on the way up and into key positions in companies and corporations and and policymaking organizations around the world that want to believe that the future is creates opportunity for them and it's not just going to be a dismal uh, all the way you know down process in terms of climate risk. So Anthony and Jacob where online can our listeners learn more about your work with IPR and how can followers of the Sustainable Finance Podcast contact you with questions about the topics that we've discussed in today's episode? So you can find us at IPR, the letters IPR.transitionmonitor.com. For some weird reason that we are working to figure out, it's not www. I think this is just a modern way to live in this world. I guess I'm so the World Wide Web kind of guy. So it's ipr.transitionmonitor.com. Find all the research there and email us at jacob, J-A-K-O-B, at theafinance.org. That's thea, T-H-E-I-A, finance.org. Uh, and obviously, Google us, find us on LinkedIn, or wherever you get your podcasts is, I think, the typical line. <laughs> and uh, so wherever you get your news, that's hopefully where we'll be. And, and obviously, we're supported by PRI here in this work. We should have probably said that more prominently up top. So I, PRI has commissioned the work you mentioned at the beginning. You can obviously find us around PRI and and um, I think this podcast will come out afterwards, but uh, perhaps you'll find us at Tokyo as well, at PRI in person. And, um, and if you have then then you'll be looking forward to listening to this as I'll advertise it there uh, extensively. Okay. Anthony, how about you? How can folks get in touch with you? And Jacob, if you send us links to these uh, other locations uh, online where people can reach you, we'll be glad to add them to the notes for the program. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, LinkedIn is always a good one. And actually, there's a great uh, inevitable policy response um, page with, where, you know, all the latest forecast news and so on get uh, get shared. So follow uh, inevitable policy response on LinkedIn uh, as well. Um, I have a couple of uh, contacts. So 
please reach out through LinkedIn, um, connect with me there, follow me there. Um, I just started a, a, a new role as, as well, looking at how we de-risk the transition and cap capital flows uh, into adaptation resilience, where I, th I mean, this type of forecast is going to be critical for the insurance sector. I think, you know, 1.8 also shows you that, you know, it's insurable. There will be a lot of risk and uncertainty, but, you know, I worry that a world above two degrees, you know, you know will be less insurable. But you can contact me if you're interested in that context on anthony.hobley at howdengroup.com. Personally, uh, on a hobley24 at gmail.com. Great. And we'll include uh, those links to, to, to your access points, Anthony, as well in our notes from the, for the program. Well, thanks again to Anthony Hobley and Jacob Tomei of IPR. And for our listeners, if you're ready to take your team to the next level or you're an experienced sustainability professional, visit the Acre website to get in touch. With the right individuals leading the way in your company, sustainability becomes more than a buzzword. Let Acre enable real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in your teams. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Yeah.